So we are in uh, Kitisa this morning. We're in Parshat Kitisa, a famous, famous Parsha for us that we read lots of times in lots of ways. Um, we're reading it where it belongs in our um, cycle of reading right now. Um, but we read this um, at holiday times. Uh, this is where we get part of our High Holy Day liturgy. Uh, and so it's a very familiar piece of Torah. So we're going to start at 33.12, but I'm going to read you... 30, I'm going to read you 32.34, okay? So I'm reading 32.34, you don't have to go there. But we're, the verse we're starting at picks up from 32.34, which says, Go now, says God to Moshe, lead the people where I told you. My angels shall go before you, but when I make an accounting, I will bring them to account for their sins. So go Right? Set out from here. I will. My angel shall go before you. Right? All right. So then we have this intervening stuff. And now we pick up at verse 12. So somebody read at verse 12, please. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Lead this people forward, but you've not made known to me whom you will send with me. Further, you've said, I've singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor. Now, if I have truly gained your favor, pray let me know your ways, that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden. And he said to him, unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us, so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. All right. So we just got a description that at the tent of meeting, um, Moshe speaks with God. And now we're getting an example of that intimate speech between God and Moshe um, in this conversation. So Moshe is referencing back to 3234 when he says, all right, you, you tell me to lead them forward, right? But I don't see anybody, I don't see angels, I don't see anybody who's supposed to help. You promised help. What? Uh, do, do I, you have an email address? Like, am I supposed to make an appointment? What? And so God says, I mean, and so Moshe continues, um, you say, you God say that I, God, have singled you, Moshe, out by name, and you have gained my favor. We don't know where God said this. This is another conversation between God and Moshe that we don't have. God gets to pick when God sends some assistance. Um, it's such a and, negotiation. And he, mentions, he mentions angels, and he mentions angels in in uh, in thirty. Uh, I will send an angel before you. So presumably, the people are nervous. They're about to. They're supposed to be heading towards the land of Israel, where they will make a conquest of the land. They're going to have to fight. They're going to have to conquer. The territory. So presumably that's frightening. And so God promises an angel to go before them, to go with them, maybe as a symbol, maybe as a, a way of proving you know, this kind of not really human you know, thing will be a way for the people to have feel confidence. We don't know. It doesn't come to pass. Why? Because the people mess up. Right? 
When it says tented meeting, who's the meeting referring to? So it's an interesting, it's a very interesting set of questions. If you read Danny Fried, Dan Friedman's Who Wrote the Bible? He has a whole theory about what is the tent of meeting and what's the tabernacle. He, he thinks the Mishkan and the tent of meeting are separate. They're different. Um, or maybe he's the one who says they're the same. <laughs> um, but there's lots of scholarship on are these two different traditions that get put together? Or is the Mishkan one thing and the tent of meeting is somewhere else? There's, there's reason to believe from the text that it might be somewhere else that's the tent of meeting. But, but anyway, it's, it, they, the they're all smished together. God and Moshe. Oh, it's clearly God and Moshe. So, but it's not in Hebrew meeting. That's why it's like, so far be it from me to, to tell the scholars it's a wrong translation. It's one translation. In Hebrew, it's, it's Ohel Ha'edut often, the, the tent of witness. Ohel Mo'ed, the tent of the season. It's, you know, Mo'adei Simcha, right? Seasons, uh, you know, festival. It's um, witnessing, aid, time. There, there's all these concepts kind of wrapped up in that. So we do our best to kind of Translated tent of meeting is what's become the the English, um, but it gets it gets a couple of different designations in Hebrew. So here it says right the tent of meeting was outside the camp, and it's different, it seems, from the Mishkan. So whenever Moshe went to that tent, right, that there would be this uh, the cloud would descend at the entrance of the tent, and that would let everybody know that God was there, and Moshe and God were having a conversation. Here's an example of one of those conversations. So, you've not let me know who's going with me, but you've said that I've gained your favor. We don't know where that gets said. 13, now, if I have truly gained your favor, please let me know your ways, darchecha, your paths, your ways, that I may know you. And continue in your favor, right? So Moshe says, okay, if I've gained favor, then let me know the ways to stay close to you, to maybe draw closer, but to stay in favor. Reveal to me how, how it is we need to, I need to behave in order to stay in your favor. This right here is already theology, Right? Not let me... There's lots of questions Moshe could have asked. It's already a theological statement to say, if I need to stay in favor with you, I need to know your ways. That we are supposed to imitate God's ways. That is, the, that is biblical theology that really is pretty consistent, I would say. There's not many things that I would carry forward 3,000 years, but this is one of them, that we really understand ourselves as needing to align ourselves with the power that makes for compassion, the power that makes for healing, the power that makes for transformation, the power that makes for justice, right? That we want to do those things so that we can walk in those ways. This is still, in some ways, our understanding um, of, of how to be in relationship to the divine. There's a bit of negotiation here. Oh, there's a lot of negotiation because here. He, he's 
Moses says to God, "You've, uh, you've, uh, if so you've, I've gained your favor." And then Moses says, "Well, now if I've really gained your favor, then you've got to do this, as if maybe God was lying to him, almost." I want to stay in your favor, so I, I want you to go one step further. I think Moses is just really lost. He's got such responsibilities, and God says, yeah, I'll be there. Well, okay, you'll be there. How do I know? Like, which, do I go left? Do I go right? How? I think he really wants something concrete. The tone of it is very intimate. It's like, it's not an awestruck. That's right. It's not an awestruck. It's such a, a sense of egality that two, people, two spirits are conversing and having a negotiation, not a supplicant. And, uh, this is very intimate language. The, yada in Hebrew, I've known you by name. Yadaticha. To know in the biblical sense there's a reason we say to know in the I knew her in the biblical sense, right? Because to know in the Bible means to be intimate on every level, including sexual. So that, that sexual contact and relationship is about an expression of a, another kind of intimacy. Uh, ultimately, it should be, right? That's the ideal I, in the ideal world. So, so I'm not saying this is sexual. I'm saying it, it's very intimate language. Let me know your essence. It's very intimate. Moshe's asking for this. It's a request. What's just happened? Well, what are we just coming out of? Golden calf. We're just coming out of the golden calf. There was a serious <laughs> rupture in the relationship between God and Israel. God is not exactly speaking to the people right now. God is still in my imagination, devastated. Devastated. That while the marriage contract is being drawn up, the people are having an affair. And God is devastated. And has not gotten over it yet. And is not really talking to the people. They lost trust, right? We can go on for three hours discussing what happened and why and what was it really about. Which, and I'm not, I'm not dismissing it. We really could. Like, and when we get to that Parsha in a few years, that part of this Parsha, we will. Because it's a wonderful exploration of our psychological you know, like responses to doubt, fear, whatever, you know, all of those things. What we're seeing now is the aftermath. Moshe tore up the marriage agreement. Moshe tore up the adoption papers. The first set of tablets. Because the people already were disloyal. So Moshe's now, you got to imagine, a little nervous. It's not going well between God and the people. It's not going well at all. So Moshe's looking for a way in. A way closer. A way, maybe, to draw God closer. But then... If that's, the, if that's the case, if, 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 if during this intimate conversation, God is, God is still pissed at Israel, then why does right after saying continue in your favor, consider too that this is your people? It's whoa, like, whoa, it's like, whoa, it's whoa. Like, don't we're, remind me. We're going that. there. We're going there. All right. So, so how can I stay in your favor? Moshe knows God is angry. 
and then it's not going well. So Moshe says, consider also that this nation is your people. You can't abdicate. You don't get to, you said, right, that you would lead us, right? So consider, this nation is your people. If you take off now, you've abandoned your people. Shouldn't the judge of the world do justly? You're going to abandon your people? So it's indication that Moshe feels, it's, God's ready to hang out with Moshe, but not those people. So Moshe is the one always, right, standing in the breach, trying to draw the parties closer. So Moshe reminds God, this is your people. And God responds, I will go in the lead and lighten your burden. You, Moshe. Ruben? It's a curious uh, juxtaposition. It seems to me that 14 should follow 15. Because after God says, I will go in the lead and lighten your burden, Moses continues Pleading, in effect. Mm-hmm. So, so one way to read this is Moshe pleading. He, I'm going to give you another one. So God says, I'll go in the lead, and I will lighten your burden. And then Moshe says, unless you go in the lead, do not make us get up from here, because we're toast. So see that you do. Right? God says, I'm going to take care of this. And Moshe says, yeah, see that you do. Or we're not leaving, right? So either Moshe is being very cheeky or just kind of reminding God, yeah, you've said a few things, <laughs> right? And just blasted the people, right? You know, yeah, well, let's make sure that we're all clear that that's what's going to happen. So maybe, maybe he's pleading, please, please, please go in the lead. And if you're not, we can't leave here. We're... we're we have no chance. Doesn't that establish a position for Moses and anybody who follows that is more egalitarian with God than one might think? I, I always think of Tevya. The, the paradigmatic relationship of a Jew to God is, is Tevya. You know, like the... What, you know, like the, really? You know, well, now what? Now what? Really? Or, you know, thank you. You know, I mean, just kind of this, but, but arguing is definitely, you know, pushing back is definitely part of the Jewish model. And I think it is one of the reasons we continue to identify ourselves as B'nai Yisrael. It's how we designated ourselves. Not B'nai Avraham, not B'nai Yitzchak, but B'nai Yisrael, right? The, the descendants of the one who wrestles, bless you, who wrestles, struggles intimately. Struggle, wrestling is very intimate. Who wrestles with God. I do. I think it's where people who, who, who finds that to be intimate. So how does progressive Judaism find a way not to lose this? Because one of the problems... I mean, traditional Judaism, of course, still says you can talk to God, sure. et cetera, et cetera. But for many progressive Jews, that, that metaphor doesn't work. 
Yes. Of, so, of a personal God, of a God you can talk to, a God you can say you to. But, I mean, Mordecai Kaplan is one example. Doesn't, isn't that what makes us real unique, that makes Judaism real unique, that we're not upset, um, accepting, we're not oh, obedient, we're not uh, non-challenging? I mean, it, it seems, I don't... I'm talking about the personal facts. No, so I'm saying, but, but what, yeah, I'm not... No, you're right. Person in comparative religion, but I mean, I think that's to me that's the most interesting part, or the most uh, the thing I like best about saying that I'm a Jew is that uh, this part of that relationship. So Bert's pointing out the personification yes. of God, yes. Yes. the anthropomorphism that we don't, as progressive Jews, have. So it, how do we say you? How do we struggle? How do we wrestle with a you? That's so unique to us. How do we say you when we don't believe in a personal being? So that, that, I think, is your question. How do we maintain wrestling with God in being in relationship to a you when I don't believe there's a thinking being on the other side of that? So what I can... And how do you deal with the liturgy? It's a... The liturgy, which clearly at points is very... So there's there's an article by Rabbi Dr. Jacob Staub, my teacher at um, RRC, who was the dean. um, It's a beautiful piece that is all about the inconsistency of a personal relationship with the divine. I don't have to have my liturgy be consistent with my theology. I can say you on Yom Kippur with longing and love and confusion and all of that at the same time holding completely an understanding of the universe that has God be an energy or a force. In other words, Jacob says our words and our feelings don't have to match our ultimate understanding. That, that there's a wide range of ways of relating to the God idea. And that you is how we daven. So we daven ve'ahavta, that we love God. We have a relationship. And we understand that, you know, is it a being? Is it a person? Is it a thinking? No. Could be both. Could be both, but that we don't have to be consistent, and that for me was a, a huge relief. Mm-hmm. It, that I that I didn't I didn't have to be leaving my integrity to daven words with my whole heart that I would never leave the synagogue and then go say, you know, God doesn't like it when. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying, Laura? It's similar to the difficulty with translating the Hebrew into English. I think that you're getting it. So you in conversational English refers to another being or a person, but you in Atar, you know, is, can be, can refer to that energy. It doesn't have to refer to what we think of in a conversational way. No, but clearly, and again, this is one of the revolutions of Judaism in, in, in religions, is there is a sense that one of the metaphors, and this is where I would come from, it's not saying one or the other, but it can be both, and that each one has a different use. God as force is sometimes a useful metaphor, and God as a person is sometimes a useful That's metaphor. That's what Jacob's saying. Right. It's and useful. They're not, and they're not mutually exclusive. It's useful. They and can, so I mean, light can be a wave in a particle. See, and he was writing this article about king of the universe at high holiday time. Yeah. You know, all of us who struggle with that right. king, 
you know, crowning God as king at the high holidays. And so he wrote the article to say th this is one of the useful metaphors that there's something bigger than us and that language and that metaphor is useful and that there are times we're pouring out our heart to you is is hell it's it's what we need as human beings it's language that we need it's not mm -hmm. about god it's about our need to express ourselves and that we don't have to make all those things ideologically so consistent there's room for ambiguity. It's God, after all, right? What do we know anyway you know, about God? So, um, but we do know something about our longing. And we do know something about a longing for a relationship. So okay. let's look at... So Moses is as much a mediator as he was yes. a leader. Yes, And yet we always refer to him as the leader, and they don't usually don't see... Not the rabbis. The rabbis understand him as Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher. He, he was a prophet, first and foremost, for the rabbis. Thank you. He was um, not, he wasn't called a leader by the rabbis. And by prophet meaning a mediator between God and mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And I just want to say, um, uh, many years ago I went to this uh, retreat that we had, and Rabbi Arthur Green was the head of the retreat, and someone asked a question similar to yours, because I think people are always struggling. Mm -hmm. that. And he says, we just have to have the ability to step in and step out of, you know, where we are to be able to be both in both types of relationship with, uh, with our God. Okay. And uh, it always just kind of stayed with me. Mm -hmm. Right. Very, very much, mm -hmm. you know, a reconstructionist mm -hmm. understanding. Which is the beautiful irony, right, of Moshe. The beautiful, beautiful irony is he doesn't speak well, but speaks beautifully. Um, when we were having that evening of from the, the autistic teenagers and young adults who were here from, what's it called, M Vista Del Mar. And, you know, they're seriously, seriously um, affected, and they are nonverbal. Right? So they're doing this and walking around you know, and doing all of that that we make all kinds of assumptions about. And then, so they were the um, Moseses mm -hmm. and the Aarons. It's called the Moses Aaron Project. And an Aaron was one of our teenagers who spoke for them because they typed read their words. Their, and they read their words. So here stands the Moses you know, up there. And the Aarons spoke their words. And their words were so beautiful and so eloquent and so gorgeous that it was exactly what you're saying. That, you know, that I think there's something really powerful about Moshe being so eloquent of thought and of longing and of, um, of priorities, like he's always pulling the people in when he could have had everything himself. He always is about the people and rectifying the relationship between God and the people. That's gorgeous, and it's put in the mouth of a man who can't speak. I mean, there's something really powerful about that for me. And that Moses Aaron evening, we were all sobbing, right? You know, you make assumptions about who I am. You think I don't think. Well, let me tell you. And then they talk about what it means to suffer, what it means to be unable to speak. And so I think that the tradition understands the power of, of that. 
of not being an orator with a great deal of charisma. Moshe's very stilted that way, right? And yet, of course, it, what does it teach us about, look how gorgeous what he says and thinks and is about is, and yet, if you saw him on the street and talked to him, you'd be like, who's this idiot? I mean, that's, that would be our immediate, you know, assumption or reaction. So I think it's a serious teaching on many levels. Um, all right, so, so Moshe's saying, um, don't forget about this people being your people, and... Um, don't make us leave unless you're really for real, for real, for real going in the lead. Because that is what will distinguish us, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. All right, let's see the response of God at 17. Does God smack Moses off the mountain? Reuben doesn't think so. Let's see. He says, I'll do it. All right, read it for us, Reuben. No. And Adonai said to Moses, I will also uh, do this thing that you have asked. For you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. It's interesting to me that um, uh, Moses is talking about the people, the the need of the people to be led. And and, uh, Adonai talks about Moses, not about the people. Exactly. Good, close reading, Reuben. All right, where am I? You're at 18. Okay, he said, oh, let me behold your presence. And God answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name eternal, and the grace that I grant, and the compassion that I show. Continuing, but you cannot see my face, for a human being may not see me as a man. And Adonai said, see, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock. And as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, for my face must not be seen. All right. So this is one of my favorite... My favorite parts of Torah, one of my favorite scenes in the entire Torah. So, God answers Moshe, I will also do this thing that you have at what thing? So a lot of commentators say, the erection of the Mishkan. God's already said, I'll lead. So, what is this other thing that Moshe has asked? And some scholars believe it's the erection of the Mishkan. Like, let us put it up that you may dwell among us, because God is so angry that it's like the deal's off. So we're not sure, but whatever it is, Moshe clearly has asked for something else that God agrees to do. For you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. And Moshe says, et Show me your kavod. Show me, right? Let me see you. Let me see your kavod, your concentrated essence, right? Moshe longs for more and more intimacy, more experience of God. And God answers, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before your face. 
and I will proclaim before you yud Hey vav Hey. and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. Does God say no? No. Does God say yes? No. Um, well, God, hang on, hang on, hang on. So God says, you want to see my kavod. Here's what we're going to do. All of my goodness is going to pass before you as yud Hey vav Hey is spoken, essentially. So this is something about God's kavod. This is something about God's essence. It seems to be about goodness, and it seems to be about this is, was, will be, meaning like existence. And it has something to do with God granting grace. Chen, grace. We've lost this word in our tradition, and it's a shame. It got taken over by Christianity, and we divorced ourselves from it. Because it became associated with Jesus. But it's our word. Chain is grace and compassion. Rachamim. From rechem, womb. Right? A feeling that a parent has for a child that cannot be earned. It is just a part of the relationship. Rachamim. That feeling for another. Mercy. Compassion. <laughs> that isn't earned. It's not intellectual, it's not chosen in some ways, it's, it's what one experiences for the issue of one's womb. You can't help it. This seems to be something God is saying about God's self and about God's essence. But, says God, you cannot see my face. For a human being may not see me and live. God's not saying, I can't show you my face. God's not saying, I don't have a face. God's not saying, no, I won't let you because you're not allowed. God is displaying compassion for Moshe in saying, if I do that, if I show you the full expression of who I am, you will no longer Bichai, you will no longer be a human being living. You will be maybe something else. It does, I don't think it means dead, by the way. I really don't. I've watched too much science fiction. <laughs> and if you get, like in science fiction, you get the ascension, like in you know, this one show I loved, you know, like the highest, when they reached a certain place of consciousness, they didn't need physical form anymore. And when they reached that place of enlightenment, you just saw this light go from them. They didn't die. They ascended. So, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Richard. To write that sacred show. Um, Stargate, Stargate, SG-1. So, the, um, so they would ascend, meaning they reached another place. I, I really believe this is an early instinct among our people, that if you were to confront the fullness of what Yudhe is really all about, the fullness of reality, capital R, you would no longer be Moshe living as Moshe. You would be something other. And I need you to be Moshe. 
And your people need you to And your people. And the people need Moshe to be Moshe. Not whatever Moshe would be having confronted the full understanding or the full reality of what God is in that moment. Maybe it could mean that um, if you saw God's face, it would be another graven image, another Astarte, another idol of some sort. And this way, it's, uh, it's more the force of compassion and the force of it's, it's a pushback against anthropomorphism of all kind at a very early stage. It's a, it's a new idea, right? That it's about my goodness. The ethics and goodness and morality is rooted in this force. That, that, that that's the focus is a very early radical idea in the ancient Near East. And it also makes me think that the longing for a God that has a face and a form is satisfied in other religions mm-hmm. by the form of Christ or, mm-hmm. you know, which we certainly don't have. Right, and we are not allowed to. It doesn't say, I don't have a shape. It doesn't even say, I didn't have a son and came down as this God incarnate. It says, that's not for you, Israel. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Adonai. Your God is the one that doesn't have a face. Or, or, right, that that's not our way of relating to the one. Maybe it's another people's way that they are allowed to satisfy that need to give God a face. What we're clear about is not you, Israel. Your way is going to be something about the force of goodness and grace and compassion, and that's where we're going to have to leave it. You don't get to satisfy that need for a face. So wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, I just want to go a little bit further. So, you can't see me, a human being can't see me and live. So, God says to Moshe, come, there's a place close to me. And it's a, you know, a little cave or whatever, right, in the rock. And God says, come here into this space. And as my presence passes by you, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my achorai. You will see my afterward. But my face must not be seen. It's like an eclipse. So God takes Moshe and lovingly tucks Moshe in where Moshe will be safe. And God takes God's own, part of God's own self, and protects Moshe from God. Then when God's fullness has, you know, gone by, and Moshe's safe, Moshe will be, God will uncover so that Moshe can experience the wake of God, the the afterwards of God. And God understands this as a loving act. From, this is as close as you can get without being fundamentally altered in a way that you'll no longer be alive the way we human beings are alive. And I remember having an incredible breakthrough with understanding this text on a whole new level when my daughter was going through a tantrum stage and I was tired 
and sleep deprived and working hard and hungry and all those things. And she started one of those tantrums. And I thought, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill her or myself. And I, like, I felt it come up and I thought, oh, my God, oh, my God. I put her in her room. And I slammed the door and I held the door shut and she's pulling on the door and kicking and pulling and screaming. And I'm crying, holding the door, protecting her from me, protecting her from the fullness of me in that moment. It was a loving act of protecting her from what would become of her if she confronted the fullness of who her mother was in that moment, right? So that, would it kill her? Hopefully not. <laughs> I like to think, right? My frontal lobes are enough online. Um, but it would alter her permanently. It would do, right? It would do something to her. To see me like, to confront that would have changed who she was fundamentally. I really believe that. And so, um, and I'm not saying I haven't done it in lots of other ways, but, but in that moment, this text made so much sense to me that God says, this is a loving thing I'm going to do, that I'm going to say, no, you can't confront the fullness of who I am, and I'm going to give you what you can handle. And that is what comes after God has passed through. This, I believe, is also a very powerful teaching about God in our lives. That, Mickey, I just want to get through this, and then I will take questions. I promise. We often long for God's presence. And I think this piece of Torah for me is so much about when it's over, when it's past, we understand God was in that too. God was there, but we can't face it in the present. It's too much. It's too overwhelming. It's, it's something we can't truly survive. Our human brains can't get around that. But after God's fullness has rushed through certain places of our lives, we can see it afterwards. My father's illness and death is one of those for me. A grueling, awful deterioration, paralyzed from here down, in a bed, in diapers, at 69 years old. Mm. I took care of him. He had no wife at that time. I was his On so many levels, I can't tell you. And then his slow three-day death over first and second night of Pesach. So um, that experience shook me, obviously, to my core. It was a huge question for me about all of this. I'm like, really? I work for you. Really? Really? We're done. <laughs> and it isn't until after the fullness of that is passed that we're able to understand, right, where that is, where God is present in that also. But it was a new part of God that I had not yet experienced and was not ready to experience as God. It would have been too much. It's only afterwards that I can understand that as a confrontation with the ultimate. 
which is also part of God. Rabbi Rami Shapiro reminds us all the time. If God is reality, capital R, that includes some pretty dark stuff. But it isn't less holy because it's scary and painful and awful and really dark. It doesn't mean it's not godly. So, yeah, Sorry. I didn't mean to yeah, no, it's okay. Go ahead, Reverend. I was wondering, back, the word back is a, is a noun, but the translation that I heard from you doesn't sound like a noun. I know, and it's purposeful, so you're right. So, achor can be back or after. Achar means after well, in Hebrew. After makes more sense. Mm-hmm. After, to me... Makes way more sense than you can see my back. Like what? I I think the metaphor is you can't confront the fullness, but you can confront. You know, you can't you can't come at me face on, but you can handle after that's passed by. Um, And I think the language of passing makes after a better translation than I've heard the back of my neck. It's like. (laughs) <laughs> right. So, um, that, so that's why I and also the ram when Avraham is going to holds the knife up and is going to slay Yitzchak and the, the angel interrupts that's when Avraham sees the ram like behind behind him meaning after right it's that same word as here like behind him after Jacob wrestles with Whatever Jacob wrestles with, he says, surely God was in this place, and I did not know it, which is another after thing, where he's saying, to me, the, the two relate to each other. A question, though, we were talking about translation, kavod, which is translated here as presence. And sometimes, sorry. Yeah, sometimes the Jews, they just don't leave stuff alone. Sometimes translated as glory. Yeah. And sometimes I've heard translation as significance. Because of the root to heaven. And right. So it, we don't know. What's your take? Um, kavod is often visual. So, you know, on the one level, I think it's the way we can represent God kind of visually with this kind of, you know, force disruption field. Um, it warps how we see things, you know, in a way. Like it, but it's all smoky and veiled because we're not allowed to have a face. We're not allowed to satisfy that urge. Um, but I do think kaved, that root of, of heavy, for me, um, I think of it as a concentrated essence. So there are times I, I sense God's kavod in the intensity of my experience something, experiencing something as holy. Does that make sense? Like it's a, it's a constant, God's always part of the universe. It's the glue that holds the universe together in my mind. There's a time where that feels weighty and it feels um, concentrated. And for me, that's kavod. For, for the literature, for the biblical literature, it's all over the map. Um, it has, I'm going to read you from my notes and maybe pointed out that every other instance of a visible kavod in the Torah is characterized by three features. One, it is a mass experience. Two, the kavod is distant from the observers. And three, God initiates the manifestation and freely chooses the time and place. 
Here, Moses pleads for an exclusively individual experience, one that is close at hand and that occurs in response to his personal request there and then. You know, so that it's, that it's usually a distant and public thing on God's terms, and here Moshe saying, but I want a private viewing up close when I ask for it, right, as a, as a sign of, of God's special favor. Reuben, did you have some, something you wanted to? Okay. Mickey? Yeah. For a change. Um, the sentence, you can't see God and live, the innuendo is possibly when you're dead, you do see God. I possibly. I So that not not in this form, we can't do it in this form. And, and, but and maybe in our next form. We're not supposed form. to know about because if we knew about it, we might want to hasten our lives. Which is why Judaism has always been very reluctant to explore the idea of the afterlife for exactly that reason. Because the rabbis say, "Don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about it. If you do everything you need to do here, it's taken care of. And if you focus on that too much, you're going to ignore what needs to be done here." So the rabbis have been very clear that, that we need to stay right in this present, in this reality, in this high, in this form of living and life and being, because that's what we're supposed to do right now. What happens next or what happens when we ascend is, it's not our business. So, oh, Laura? It's really more a question about Christianity, I think. Mm -hmm. Different people recently been saying to me, people who weren't Jewish but weren't really steeped in, they weren't very religious in their Christianity, but they said, you know, our, my impression of Judaism is that it's so family-oriented, it's so tzedakah-oriented, they didn't use that word, but I was surprised because I always thought, well, I take that for granted, and I figured I hear so much about the Christian way, or that that would be part of their experience as well. Um, you know, to get to heaven, don't you have to be good and stuff? But their reactions were no, really not well, so much. Well, that well that will also vary between which particular group. And also, Christian, these were Christian not belief. people who identified. Catholicism will have a different take than a lot of different Protestant groups. You have this whole tension between is faith enough alone, mm -hmm. or is acts enough mm -hmm. alone, or do you need faith and acts? And um, um, you know, if you if you were to read the if you were to read the Gospels then there would be, uh, in, in what's called the New Testament, then you would have Jesus talking about compassion and, 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 and the need to you know, sort of be social justice and the need to engage, engage with the world. Um, so yeah, so it, it ranges. It ranges within Christianity, but certainly faith mm -hmm. is a serious component right, of that. What, what, speaking of faith... That shows. Speaking of faith, um, uh, I do want to say what one commentary I read on this that I also find powerful is that the reason God says you can't see my face is because for human beings to be in relationship to the divine, there needs to be the possibility of disbelief. Yeah. And mystery. And mystery. And without that, without the possibility of disbelief or mystery, you don't have faith. You have certainty. I saw God. That's how I know there's a God. Rather than, 
right? I a leap. I take some kind of leap to be in relationship to this mystery, right? That that there's always the possibility of saying that's silly, that you know, it doesn't exist, and that that is faith meaningful without an element of needing to. To doubt and to leap, and that doubt is critical to the relationship. I, I love that. But the fact that we actually, as a people, did have the experience of seeing God's presence on yeah. Sinai, and then we're still doubting when we really did have that experience. But, do, but did they believe it was God? Oh, it was a cloud. It was a cloud. It was a fu- it was thunder. I don't think if it was just a cloud, they'd be like, "We can't." You, you know, you deal with it. We can't. Or if we look anymore, we're going to die. But it, it seems that to have a definitive, you know, experience of <laughs> visually seeing God. It's like mm-mm, they, there's a critical component that goes away if if that were to happen. So, so, so when you have one of the few places in a in our readings. Where Moses uh, and God confront each other? Face to face, face the to text face. tells us. So, so it's a very interesting thing that God says you can't see my face and live. And yet, Moshe is the only one to experience God panim el panim, face to face. So it is a beautiful built-in dichotomy, right, that we don't quite understand. Yes? So you know how, like, remember in that... Um, the session, uh, the, how do you see God with the, the rabbi, the priest walking to the bar, okay? And Rabbi Rubin was saying, you know, I don't really believe in, like, he was saying, I see God through children, I see God through plants, I see God through, okay, so we've all heard this, right? So if, if this is the case, is this, is this why... Is this God giving you clues because you can't look right at him? Is that what this text is sort of also saying, you know? That is that what? Well, he has to shield him because you're not you can't you can't look right at God because it's too it's too much. It's too heavy. Right? So is there therefore over time, like people like Rabbi Reuben or people who believe that it's through beauty or through your children or whatever, is it because it's just, it's evolved to that? Torah doesn't tell us. Torah just says, you cannot confront the reality in its fullness and survive it as Nicole. Now, you figure out what that means. That's you so figure out about what that means about God and presence in your life. And I feel like I feel like that from the way they figure that out is by saying it's through beautiful Mary or through the child. You get to fill in that blank, my dear. That is, that is the beauty and the challenge and the hard, difficult part of being Jewish. They don't is you tell have to fill in that blank. When they say they're, they're looking for spirituality, they're striving for spirituality, but there may be an element of it where they're really striving for an image. They want to be confronted with the total of reality so that they know they're right. So they don't just accept the trees or the sunset or the moon. You know, Everybody has their own response. I think it's more that knowing that you're, you're right for the sake of being right, but also for the sake of you know, like a child or some, you know, comfort. What do I do? I'm faced with this choice and this choice, and I'm and I'm on the fence. 
and what is the godly way? What you know? How do I how do I know what to choose? You know, should I send my child to that school or that school? Will they? Which one will help them? You know, become a good person? And you know, where should I live? What all the different choices that you make in your life, and the, all we get is goodness, compassion, and some grace. So basically, it's up to you to figure it out still. You're on your own. So, I mean, we do get a few more, well, a few more ways of understanding what the right thing to do is and the wrong thing to do is. I mean, we get a bit more specific, right, about no killing, no murder. I mean, there, there are other explorations in our text about that. But I think ultimately, yes, certainly for progressive Jews, yes, those are the salient questions. What is the compassionate thing to do? What is the thing that will be most expressive of goodness? I don't know, but that's why we are Yisrael. That's why we are the ones who struggle and wrestle with what is goodness? What is compassion? Right, yeah, yeah. I just have a, a thought about <laughs> people that do see God, you know, often have psychotic breaks. And just the whole psychology of that transformation, you know, and, and a lot of them are walking around on the street, homeless, you know, but they have had a direct, they say, experience with God. And there are many who want to say, we write them off as psychotic, but... We don't know. Right. Rabbi Harold Kushner, in his book, When Children Ask About God, I thought had a very interesting analogy on this, and he asked kids about it, because he said, you know, if when your child asks about God... Ask your child what they know exists but they cannot see. Touch my love. Touch my No. One of the things kids say is wind. Sorry. What do you know exists but you can't see it? Wind. There's a perfect example. You, can, you know that wind exists because you see the effect of wind, but you can't see wind. You can't see electricity. Uh, another example, although slightly different, is if you stare at the sun, you go blind. Right. But we can see the light of the sun reflected off of us and other things. And he says, touch my love. Tell your child, touch my love. Mm -hmm. You know that That's yeah. the kid doesn't, and the kid goes, I can't touch your love. Well, then, but you, but you, but you know I love, right. Then how do you know I love you? If you can't see it and you can't touch it, how do you know that I love, you know, and I mean, for me, it's the closest analogy to something that, and you know, wind you know, passes by and we feel the effect. Love is something that we experience. We don't know, you don't know love. You experience love. And for me, we experience God. And what does she say? Well, yeah, but you know what? Ellie's never had a moment of disbelief. Yeah. No, she, but when you say Ellie, in other words, she's never, you know I love you? She, I don't ask her that question. <laughs> I don't ask her that. The, the question is in response to the question is in response to a child or, or to the child who says, "How do I see God? I can't see God. How do I know God exists?" That's the question in response. How do you know my love for you? She's never, she's never questioned it. She drew me a picture of God at one time um, that was quite moving. Um, she's described God to me always in the terms of she which is fascinating. I've, I don't use pronouns about God, but Ellie's very clear that it's she. Until yesterday when she asked me if God is a he or a she, and I was devastated. I was devastated that like already the he language 
as dominant has entered her consciousness. But anyway, here's my favorite is we opened a magazine and she goes, Mommy, she was maybe four, this is what God looks like. And I said, like without leaping across the bed to snatch the magazine, really, honey? Can Mommy see that picture? (laughs) Try to stay calm because you're too interested, then they go away. So she shows me the magazine and do you remember the show Frasier? So Lilith, the woman who played Lilith, had done an ad for Got Milk. And it shows her in a leather jacket, fishnet hose, high-heeled boots, sitting you know, on the edge of a stool like this, you know, with, her, with her little milk mustache that says, Got Milk. And I'm like... This is what God looks like, Mommy. I knew I should have sent her to Hebrew Day School. I knew it. I knew it. She's seen the film Dogma. (laughs) Not yet, but I was. But like our, it's just okay. Okay, one visual. Um, All right, so we are probably at time to uh, to close. I'll try to bring you her description of God for next time.